I'll be reading Acts 3. Because of the length of the passage, you are welcome to remain seated. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold in the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me?
Father, this, um, this passage reminds us of the extraordinary power that is at work through uh, your risen son, Jesus, in this world, even today. Um, and so, Father, we ask now, uh, as we are gathered, as we are, are weak and needy, as we sung earlier, um, that you would speak uh, through Jesus your powerful voice into our lives and to our hearts, uh, renewing us, reshaping us, making us whole. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as Nick said earlier, uh, this morning we're beginning an eight-week series we're calling Revision, where our focus is on thinking about who we are as a church and and what we believe God is calling us to be in these coming months and years. And we're doing this because we think God has given us a gift. This has not been an easy year for us, this last year for any of us. And yet, as we were alluding to earlier, there are some things that this year has allowed us to do. It has allowed us to slow down and to step back and to think things through again. And that's what we're wanting to do together as a church, to step back and to think and, and be creative and be careful and say, God, where do you want us to go as a church? And really where we want to begin this morning is with the gospel. If you have been with us for any length of time, hopefully you know that we use that word a lot. The gospel matters a lot to us. I realize that word sometimes is a bit confusing. It can be used in all sorts of ways. You can have like gospel music or whatever. When the Bible speaks of gospel, it's speaking just very simply of something that happened. Uh, the word gospel means good news. And so that idea of news is a declaration that something happened, something in a place that you could find on Google Maps at a time that can be traced in history, something took place that was of such enormous significance that the world has been changed because of it, something that happened through Christ's death and resurrection. That's, that's what we're talking about with the gospel. And when I'm saying we want to begin with the gospel, that that should be at the very heart of who we are, I'm saying more than just that we want to make sure we all agree to some facts, although we do, or even that we have certain ways that we are living together as a result of the gospel, although that's what we desire as well. But even more fundamental than that, I'm saying when we start with the gospel, we want the gospel to reshape our stories. That might sound abstract, but the reality is each of us, whether we think of it or not, has some sort of story that we are telling ourselves that makes sense of our lives. Each of us in our mind has some kind of happily ever after that we're moving towards. There are some obstacles or, or villains or challenges that we're facing and seeking to overcome. Each of us has some view of ourselves as, as in some ways maybe the heroes of our stories. We tell a story about ourselves, about this world, and that story in ways that are deep and profound shape us, shape how we act, shape how we live. Just as a rather trivial example of this kind of interplay between story and actions, um, our family uh, tends to like to go on road trips, um, and, and generally it's a fun thing, except 
um, during the drive, I can get a little stressy, especially when we're doing like a stop at like a road stop for lunch. Like somehow the moment we leave the car, I become like drill sergeant guys. Like, hey, we have 37 minutes. You need to synchronize your watches. You can't go to the bathroom until later. No extra orders for your burgers this time. We need to keep things. I mean, like, I don't know exactly what happens to me, but somehow like everyone is feeling like I have this like stress ball that's kind of filling the whole family. And I'm sure actually if I just stayed home, stayed back in the car while they all did their thing and brought lunch back to me, it would probably be better for everyone. And, and I've been trying to think through, and I, I hope I'm growing in some ways in this, but I've been trying to think through why is it that I get like that. And I think it's because I'm telling myself the wrong story. Somewhere along the line, I have decided that I am the road trip guardian. That I'm the one who's defending from all road trip threats, which of course, there's so many of them on a road trip. And I'm making sure that we're staying according to schedule, and I'm making sure we don't forget anything. No, no one has appointed me that job, and no one needs me to do that job, and yet in my mind, that is the story I am telling, and it is shaping the way that I act in a way that is not very helpful, because it's not the true story, it's making things harder for me and for my family. My point in that really small illustration is, is that is actually how all of us operate in different ways. We have a story that we tell that involves us and involves the world, and, and that story shapes us. And, and the way towards maturity as a Christian is as our story gets fundamentally rewritten and reshaped by the things that happened that the gospel tell us. As long as the more that the gospel story becomes our story, the more whole and complete and mature we become. So I want us, as we're thinking about the story of Trinity, to begin with the story of what happened in the gospel. And this morning, what I want us to do, there's plenty of places we can look. The Bible in so many different areas helps us to understand the gospel. But I want to go, what we just read, to one of the very earliest gospel proclamations that take place after Jesus has risen. And I'm struck by, in the Bible, how often gospel proclamation is not just speaking. It's usually some sort of event or picture or sign and then an interpretation that happens after. And I think the reason Jesus first and then the apostles do this is because for our story to be remade, we need more than just words. We need, we need pictures. We need stories. And so that's what we have here in the passage that we have read. We have a picture of the gospel and then an explanation. So let's begin with that picture. It takes place probably a few months after Jesus has risen from the dead. It's about 3 p.m. on a summer afternoon, and, and Peter and John are walking into the temple to do what people do at that hour. They go there to pray, and as they are walking, they notice uh, on the ground, lying up against kind of the entranceway to the gate, a man who is begging. And they can understand pretty quickly why he's begging, because they notice that his his legs are kind of sprawled out in this crooked way that, that legs normally aren't, and that they're, they're like toothpick thin. There's no muscle on them. And it's apparent, as we are told in our passage, that he was lame, not only lame, but lame from birth. Those, those three words, lame from birth, if we just stop, there's an entire story right there, isn't there? Think of, think of the, the moment this, this little boy is born and the mother 
cradles him in her arms with joy, but notices that there's something wrong with his little body. And, and as he gets older, how he becomes increasingly isolated because all of his peers and his siblings are playing and he is just staying in one place. And as he continues to grow up with fear, he more and more realizes that he is not going to be able to engage in the family trade. He is not going to be able to find some way to provide for himself. He's going to depend on others. And as he gets older by this time, he's about 40, his parents become too old to care for him. And all he has left in terms of finding some form of sustenance is to stay on the ground, look at people's knees as they pass him by, and keep on saying, could you spare some change? That's... That's the man here. And I wonder what his relationship with God is like, having experienced what he's experienced. What, what it is like for him. Does he, does he have a hard time believing that God loves him as one of his chosen people? That God is merciful when he's experienced what he's experienced? It's interesting to me that at the time of prayer, and in the place of prayer, this man instead is standing right outside of that prayer. Is that because no one would bring him in? Or is it because he didn't want to go in because he was convinced he would probably get more benefit by asking people for money than asking God for help? We have a picture here of a man who is broken and disconnected from God. And I actually think here there is a sense in which we have metaphorically or an image of, of this world. I mean, this world is broken. That seems to be a fairly good way of describing it. Perhaps you might come up with other words. Corrupt, frustrating, unjust, filled with suffering. The Bible speaks of sin. Whatever language we want to use, I think we can all agree that there is something fundamentally wrong with this world right now. And it's not just out there. It's... It's inside. There is something bent within us. And, and disconnected from God seems to be at the root of all of this, whether we understand it or not. There is a sense of distance, of, of disconnection from God. When we see this picture of this man, we are seeing in some ways a reflection of us. And so Peter and John are walking and, and they see this man and this man is just repeating the same thing again and again, but Peter and John gaze at him and it says they stop and they look and they catch his attention and, he's, and Peter says, look at us. And so this man who's just sitting down finally raises his gaze and I'm sure he doesn't have the categories for what might happen. I think his biggest hope is that maybe these people, because they want to talk to him, will give just a little bit more money. And so he looks up at Peter and John, and immediately Peter explains, look, I don't have any money for you. But here's what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then Peter stretches out his hand. And I, and I really wonder at this moment what is going through the man's mind as he's seeing this hand stretched, as he's hearing the most staggering, crazy thing. Does he at some point think, maybe I'm just going to like turn my head? But instead, that's not what he does. He, he takes Peter's hand. And actually, at this moment, I, I was 
imagining it wrong, I noticed after I was looking at it again. I, what I thought was happening at this moment was just like, you know, you can almost feel like this music swelling up as he grabs the hand and, and his legs start getting stronger and, and slowly he stands up. But actually, did you notice that's not what it says? It says, when he takes him by the hand, he springs up and starts walking. It's like so quick, like this surge of energy fills his legs, surge of life fills his legs, and suddenly he's walking. And he's not just walking. So uh, some of you might know our, uh, the, one of the major events in the Ziegler family over the last years, we've gotten a new dog, a dog named Emmy, who's a great little dog. And uh, this dog is very happy when any of us come home, like overwhelmingly happy. Like it doesn't know what to do with itself happy. When we, like I, sometimes if I like step through the back gate and he's there, first she'll come up really quickly and kind of like say hello, and then she'll just start doing laps again and again and again because she can't contain her excitement. And I kind of imagine that that's actually what's happening with this because it says once he stands up and walks, he starts jumping and leaping and praising God. It's like, thank you, God. I mean, like, he's, he has so much energy, he doesn't know what to do. And notice he's like leaping. He's like, come on, let's go into the temple because that's where it says he goes next. And, and Peter and John follow him. Do you see what's happened? He, he's been made whole and he's been reconnected back to God. Now, there's so many details about this story that I like, but the part that I probably get the most kick out of is what happens next. So he's still just hopping around, and people are noticing, and it says like crowds are running to see what happened. And what does Peter say? I mean, I don't know if he's grinning or not when he says this, but it's really funny to me when he says, fellow Israelites, why are you surprised? Like someone who has never stood before is now jumping, and he's like, Pfft. Why are you so surprised by this? And here's what he means. He says, if you, if you were paying attention, if you were paying attention to what happened a few months ago, then right now you'd go, yeah, that makes sense. If you had had the right story in your mind, if you were allowing the events that took place when Jesus rose from the dead to shape you, then this would just follow because this, what just happened, this is just an aftershock of the real earthquake. This is just an echo of the great joyful noise that happened a few months ago. This is just an outworking. This is a sign that's meant to point you back to the really extraordinary thing. Because when Jesus rose from the dead... The whole fundamental reality of the world shifted. Before that moment, there is a real sense that sin and brokenness and death ruled over the world. But when Jesus went to the cross, he took that sin and that death and that brokenness in his own body and he put it to death on the cross. And the Bible says that when he rose again a few days later, filled with this new, powerful resurrection life, he rose as the king of everything. He says, all authority has been given to me. He is now authority over sin. Where there is sin, he is able to take people who are sinful and make them righteous. He has all authority over death. Where there's death, he's able to give life. He has all authority over brokenness. Where there is brokenness, he is able to make wholeness. 
And that's what this miracle that's called a sign is meant to show. What we're supposed to see is just an apostle just using the name, just the simple name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is so much resurrection power through Jesus that just the name makes someone who was completely broken whole. And what we're supposed to understand is that's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. That's what is happening. That the risen Jesus who is now king is at work taking this broken world and bringing wholeness. Taking the isolation and loneliness and building a new community. Taking this frustration and corruption and making harmony. Taking a distance from God and confusion and bringing joyful connection with God. He is doing this. And what I want to ask you is, is that the story that shapes your story? That this happens, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is the king who reigns over all, and he is making the world whole. Because that's the gospel. If, if this more and more becomes your story, then that means you can be confidently hopeful. Does that describe you? It's so easy to not be confidently hopeful because right now things feel, they feel like they're falling apart. There is more distrust. There is more isolation. There is more polarization than I can remember. And that's leading to just cruelty. People, when you disagree with someone, it's not just we disagree, it's we hate each other. That, that leads to horrible things. We're seeing these terrible shootings, it seems like, again and again. It leads to just so much dissension and injustice and discouragement, and it can just feel hopeless. And... And there can be this sense of wherever God is, he's far away, and that can feel hopeless. And yet we have a hope that counteracts all of that, that the risen Jesus is king, and he is making everything whole. Not immediately, not all at once. I don't know if you noticed, as Peter was explaining this in his sermon following it, he, he, he speaks about how Christ, that heaven must receive Jesus in verse 21 right now. That, that right now Jesus is with God in heaven. There is a hiddenness about Jesus. There is a hiddenness about the way that he is at work making all things whole. But, but notice how it continues on. Until the time for restoring all things. That's what Jesus is doing when he returns. He will restore all things. He will make all things whole. The world will no longer be out of joint. No longer will there be any tragedy in the news day after day. No longer will a doctor say it's aggressive cancer. No longer will there be pandemics. No longer will there be this frustrating feeling of being distant from God and confused because you're not quite sure what you think about God and doubt because you will see God face to face. 
And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God, as Isaiah says. That is our future because the risen Jesus who reigns over all is making all things whole. That is our gospel. That is our story. And the story being described here is not just a future hope, although we have that for confidence. It's also speaking of what Jesus is doing in the present. And we just back up a little bit uh, in verse 19 where Jesus says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. These words are remarkable. If we were just to back up a few verses, we would see what Peter said. Peter reminds this crowd of who they are. You are people who have murdered Jesus, the author of life, the son of God, the one that even Pilate wanted to set free. You killed him without remorse. And he's risen which should be terrifying to them except for the fact that he says with the power that he has, the authority that God has given, his desire is not vengeance. His desire is to use his power to bring you forgiveness. Notice that language, to blot out your sins, to wipe your slate clean. That is what Jesus is doing to make things whole. I, I want to just pause here for a moment because even if some of us have heard this before, I wonder if it always has penetrated our stories. I remember speaking to a friend who, who identifies himself as a Christian, but he says in a moment of honesty, you know, in all reality, the man, of God, the, the, the man upstairs and I aren't terribly close. And as I was thinking about it after, I think what was underneath this was the feeling of, you know what, because the man upstairs doesn't really want to be that close to me because I'm kind of a screw-up. I'm not, I'm not the person that I should be. And so I think God and I will probably keep each other at arm's length. But do you hear that that's not the way things are in Christ? The blotting out of sins. Jesus is completely washing away sins of all who turn to him so that there is nothing between us and God except God's love and desire to embrace us as a father embraces his children. Is that part of your story that in Christ, who is making all things whole, your sins are blotted out? There's one more thing about the, this wholeness that Jesus is giving that Peter speaks about. I don't know if you noticed after it says, talking about that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. What is this? It, it doesn't seem like he's talking about this final restoration because he says Jesus is in heaven until that time comes when he returns. But it's also talking about more than just forgiveness. He's saying that as you turn to Jesus, his resurrection power will begin to work in your soul, giving you life, refreshing you, making what was broken straight and whole. The, the spirit of the risen Jesus will be at work teaching your heart slowly what you have a hard time believing, that your Father in heaven loves you. This, this spirit of the risen Christ refreshing you will do more than that. Notice the very last verse of our passage talks about how Jesus raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is what Jesus is doing. He is blessing people by turning us, by, by reshaping us, by, by making us new so that we can become 
the beautiful children of God we were created to be. Do, do you know the, do you, do you see the kindness of this? You know, I remember seeing a bumper sticker not that long ago that said, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. And I want to suggest to you, that is not the right story. Yes, it's true. Christians are not perfect. We will not be until Jesus returns. And it's also true that we are forgiven, as we have just said, through Christ. But it is not true that we are just forgiven. It's not true that Jesus wipes out our sins and says, I'll see you in a few years when I come back. No, it says that the refreshing work of Jesus is at work in our life, changing us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should expect to change. I know that can be hard for us to understand sometimes because oftentimes it doesn't feel that way. There are moments in our Christian life where we will feel like God is doing something and making us different. Perhaps the most common time is if you, as an adult, come to Christ. You will, you will notice sometimes this change in desire, change in actions. People will even say, hey, what's different about you? And you'll feel the fact that the Spirit is at work in you. But oftentimes, I would say this is even more often the case, it won't feel like change is taking place. And I would suggest at least some of the time the reason for this is because God is doing, the Spirit is doing that deeper, harder, more subtle work in the very depths of your heart. Dealing with those hidden fears Dealing with the bitterness and crevices that you've tried to hide your eyes from. Dealing with those false hopes that you haven't even admitted to yourself. And as, as the Spirit is unearthing this to be able to bring healing, it can actually feel the opposite of growth. It can feel destabilizing, confusing. You can feel filled with doubt. But the work that is being done is good and profound. And it changes us even when we feel weakened. In fact, sometimes it's precisely because we feel weakened that we are growing. Because Jesus, the risen, powerful Jesus, is at work in us, making us whole. This is the gospel. This is what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the king with all authority. And as he shows in this moment with this image, what he is doing with his power and authority is taking what is broken and sinful and far from God and connecting us to God and making us whole and making this world whole. That is the true story. And if we can just let it sink in and reshape us, it will change us. It will turn us into a people of hope in a world of despair. It will enable us to live with hope. Right now, I feel like if we're just listening to the stories that surround us in our culture, there is very little optimism that life can get better. Personally, we might feel like maybe we can kind of go through some therapy or maybe get some more finances and make things more comfortable, but when it comes to finding meaning, when it comes to growing closer to God and be reshaped by Him, that just seems so far off. That's hopeless. But that's not the true story. Right now, the, the, the 
The stories that surround us tell us that we should give up on the church because the church is just one mess after another mess after another mess of abuse and corruption and, and hypocrisy all the way down. And if we just look and see, there is nothing there and that's why everyone's leaving it. But that's not the true story. When it comes to the world right now, the voices that surround us are voices of despair. I've noticed that there's a lot of talk, and oftentimes important talk, diagnosing the problems that are going on, issues of injustice and racism and cruelty and polarization and loneliness. But I don't think I've heard almost any voice that speaks hopefully that there's going to be any way of changing this. That the best we can do is try to find ways to make the pain a little bit less as we make it through this life. But that is not the true story. And that doesn't have to be our story. The true story is that the Son of God conquered sin and death and brokenness and is at work right now. He's at work in you and me, drawing us to God. He's at work in the church, oftentimes not in the, the slick, big churches that we so associate with the problems, but oftentimes in churches, in, in areas that people don't even think about, churches where there's persecution, churches where there's poverty, but the Spirit is at work doing things if only we look. And Jesus is at work in this world, and one day it will be made whole. And if we can allow that to shape us, we can be people filled with hope. I was listening to a podcast the other day of a pastor in Portland who's in some ways doing a similar series to what, what we're doing, trying to kind of revision as we're moving out of this COVID season. And he said this line that kind of stuck with me. He said, I think it's time for us to dream again. And I want to say the same thing for us. That this is the time for us to dream again, to dream of what God might do in this church, in Trinity, what God might do through this church as we seek to, to love and to serve the world. What might God call us to? And I hope and pray that as we dream and think about this, that we will take steps. We will try creative things. We will try crazy things. We will do things that won't work. But maybe as we are dreaming and trying, we will do things that we see great fruit in that honors Jesus. And the reason that we will dream and the reason that we will take these steps is not because we have some overinflated sense of our own importance, our ability, but because we have a different story. A story of the one who has risen again and who is making all things whole. And because we know that is happening, we can dream and step forward in faith. But what I want us to do right now as we close is just to kind of sit before the story of the gospel. To kind of listen in quiet and, and ask God in a moment of quiet where it is that we have let the false stories shape us instead of allowing the gospel to take hold of our hearts. This might be a time as we quiet that, that it leads us to confess our lack of faith and to move us to trust and to ask for help. So let's take a couple minutes just of listening and responding in prayer and then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes time.